Welcome to the Psych Central Show, where each episode presents an in-depth look at issues from the field of psychology and mental health, with host Gabe Howard and co-host Vincent M. Wales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Show podcast. My name is Gabe Howard, and with me, as always, is Vincent M. Wales. And we want to remind you that you can get one week of free, convenient, affordable, private, online counseling anytime, anywhere by visiting betterhelp.com slash psychcentral. We would like to welcome back Dr. John Grohall. Longtime listeners know Dr. Grohall as the editor-in-chief of PsychCentral.com, officially making him our boss, but he's also the podcast's resident researcher of all things psychology and mental health. John, how have you been? Hey, great to be here, guys. I have been well. We are glad to have you on. We are going to discuss... A really cool topic because it, you're about to blow our minds because I think many of us, uh, I'm in my 40s, Vin is not, is also not, not in his 40s, but <laughs> we learned about this in high school and college as a legit experiment and uh, you're about to blow our minds. We're talking about the Stanford prison experiment that concluded that if given enough leeway, all people will become evil and awful and fall into their roles and humanity is doomed. That might be a little bit of a stretch, but but yeah. But but uh, John, what was the Stanford prison experiment? Well, you know, it's a common thing taught across psychology classrooms in college and even in high school. And it's a really fascinating experiment. That's why it's taught so much. It's about an experiment run by a, a psychologist named Philip Zimbardo back in 1971. And he, uh, the researchers decided to uh, test what would happen if you put a lot of ordinary people together in a situation that he thought might cause them to sort of act out their very worst behavior. And so he advertised the experiment and received uh, 24 mostly white male college students to come and get paid uh, $15 a day uh, to participate in the experiment. And he assigned the subjects into two groups randomly. Uh, one group was going to pretend that they were the prisoners, and the other group was going to pretend that they were the guards. So 12 prisoners, 12 guards. Actual experiment had nine and nine, and then they actually had three alternatives in case one of the people got sick or whatnot. And then they put them in a made-up prison in the basement of the one of the Stanford University's academic buildings. And they thought they would uh, let the experiment go for two weeks and uh, just kind of see what would happen as it went along. So what were the rules of the experiment as Dr. Zimbardo published? What did he say the rules the participants were supposed to follow were? Well, he suggested that there really weren't a lot of rules, that the guards were to act as guards and that they didn't really have a, a set of rules or behaviors that they were expected to do. He basically suggested that they were just told to be authoritarian and, you know, that they had control of the prison and the prisoners and that they could, they couldn't physically harm the prisoners or withhold food or drink. But the description of the experiment such was that he basically suggested that he wasn't really giving them 
a way to act or, or a way to behave towards the prisoners. So he left them to their own devices. That was the belief up until uh, a few years ago, yes. But it didn't quite go like that. And the thing didn't last the whole two weeks either, did it? Nope. After just five days, the experiment was called off after the guards started behaving uh, very cruelly towards the prisoners. Um, the prisoners also, in turn, had become, many of them had become depressed and submissive. And so the researchers decided to call off the experiment early for the sake of all of the prisoners and guards' health and mental health. And all the way back in 1971, when, when this experiment was conducted, uh, doctors in Bardo said that people were allowed to quit if they so choose. Is that correct? That is what he told us for many, many years. What we are finding out now is that it's not at all clear whether people had as much freedom to leave the experiment as he suggested they did. Before we discuss the controversy, the, the first thing that I, I want to ask is, did anybody try to duplicate his results? Because in the scientific method, being able to duplicate results is very important. So this experiment is problematic to duplicate because it actually raised a lot of ethical questions about the treatment of subjects and a subjects' rights in research. And after this experiment was run and due to this experiment and other scientific experiments conducted in the 1960s and 70s, um, uh, subjects' research rights uh, were actually uh, strengthened and greatly improved. And the uh, review board that has to review every uh, scientific study before it's allowed to go forward at a university has a lot more leeway in ensuring that subjects can't sort of be abused in any way. And so what happened is there, was, um, there were a couple of attempts at, at replication of this experiment. Um, one of them was in 1979, which um, according to Zimbardo, I haven't actually read this particular study, that he, he says that they kind of found uh, pretty much what he found. A more famous uh, replication attempt was done in the late, uh, in 2001, and it was done as a part also of a television show in the UK. And that experiment, uh, that show, which wasn't a quite a mirror duplication, couldn't reproduce the, the effects of, of the original experiment. What were the results of that in, in a nutshell? That show, and I, I'm not sure I would call it an experiment any more than I would call the Stanford Prison Experiment an experiment, because these are things that really are not don't follow the scientific process um, in any way, shape, manner, or form. Uh, it did not find that people um, just fell into a situational role that they couldn't get out of. They did not find that guards starting to act in very authoritative uh, and abusive ways. Um, instead, they actually found that uh, guards were very empathetic towards the prisoners and um, and when a prisoner complained about uh, being unwell, the, the guards were actually trying to help the prisoner. One of the things that that I have seen in not only in uh, some of the th recent things that have come out, but things that just stood out to me even when I first heard about this experiment, were that it just it just seemed flawed from the very get go because you know he he got these students, if I'm not mistaken, by placing an ad. And the ad itself specified that it was a prison 
type experiment, right? Yes. So that would mean that the people who are signing up for this were inclined to be interested in doing a prison type thing and therefore could have been, you know, a little Machiavellian to start with. Yeah, I think the, the, the crux of the argument is whether there's some other alternative explanation that could also um, account for the findings of Zimbardo's experiment. And uh, I think we actually have quite a few uh, possible confounds um, or problems with the experiment that really draw into question its conclusions and its results. Um, one of them, of course, is the fact that, as it turns out, it looks like the guards are probably not just given a, a, a um, general list of uh, guidelines on how to act, but they were actually encouraged and um, told to act in very uh, aggressive uh, way, that, that, that this was not a part of any of the written um, scientific uh, part of the the study that was recorded for the journal publishing later on, but in later interviews, we're finding out that the guards were actually instructed to be a lot more aggressive and hostile towards the prisoners by the supervisor, if not by Zimbardo himself. And that just ruins it right there. Right. So they were told to be aggressive, therefore they were aggressive, so to draw the conclusion that it was their own free will where they chose to be aggressive is sort of out the window. This is really just proof that they can follow instructions from the authority figure who pays them. Yeah, I mean, and the great thing about this experiment is that Zimbardo has put all of the video and documentation and photographs and transcripts on a website so people can, you know, really delve into it. And uh, unfortunately, that has not been to his benefit because... This is where people have found out that he, you know, he published and said one thing and apparently um, did something else in the actual experiment. So he actually told the, the guards ahead of time, um, you know, you're going to create a sense of powerlessness in the, in the prisoners and you will have all the power and they'll have none. I mean, he's creating the, the expected role that he wants the guards and the prisoners to act in. Um, so it's not just that there's a drama or a play being played out here. It's that he is actually, as the playwright, you know, scripting a lot of what the expected plot is going to be. So he was not an objective observer in this experiment at all? Uh, not, not from what I can tell and from what other um, researchers and analysts uh, who have looked at the data and who have looked at the um, transcripts have have discovered. We know that this was a very popular experiment because most of us have heard of it. Forget the controversy. Most of us have been taught this in school. It, it's taught in colleges. You can Google it and read all about it. I, other websites that have nothing to do with psychology or mental health have written about the Stanford prison experiment. So this really got him a lot of cachet in the community. He was kind of a of a rock star for lack of a better word. So why is it taken so long for anybody? Cause you know, 1971 to 2018, didn't they realize that something was amiss in 1975? Well, that is one of the challenges that um, psychology as a profession and, and some other professions actually are also facing in terms of the science and the expected science and, and where we are with it. Um, that, uh, 
a lot of things aren't being tried to uh, be replicated. And when they are tried to be replicated by other researchers who have nothing to do with the original experiment or study, um, we're finding that replication is difficult and doesn't always happen in the way that the original experiment suggested the data uh, should play out. So um, I think that that we're finding that this kind of problem is um, not unique to Zimbardo or the Stanford prison experiment, but um, a, a, an experiment, even a famous one like this can go for years or in this case, a very long time before people start really questioning um, some of the basic foundation and, and, and the premises that the experiment was based on. How did Zimbardo react? What's his, what's his take on the criticism? So after the controversy kind of took a new life once again on June 7th, when Ben Bloom published a, a very lengthy article over at medium.com describing um, some of the major issues and problems with the experiment um, as he saw them. And in reaction to that article and, and the media coverage that was given to that article, Dr. Zimbardo decided that it needed a, a very thorough rebuttal, and he published a very lengthy rebuttal on the Stanford Prison Experiment website um, that dealt with all of the criticisms. Now, uh, I, I have to say some of the, you know, some of the responses uh, definitely uh, deserve a second look in terms of what Bloom was alleging. But some of them are, you know, he, he, he kind of glossed over the kinds of things that he didn't really want to address. And that's um, commonplace when a researcher uh, wants to focus on, uh, you know, the, the things that he can kind of prove to uh, not be true. And uh, he doesn't really have a, an answer to some of the other criticisms that Blue made. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Secure, convenient, and affordable online counseling. All counselors are licensed, accredited professionals. Anything you share is confidential. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you feel it's needed. A month of online therapy often costs less than a single traditional face-to-face -face session. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central and experience seven days of free therapy to see if online counseling is right for you. BetterHelp.com forward slash Psych Central. So it, it seems like we can't really say that this experiment, quote, experiment, accomplished what he had intended. But is there anything that we can really take away from it that that is plausible? So it's really hard to say. At the end of the day, when you look at uh, something like this, it's, it's an interesting anecdote uh, devised by a researcher uh, in a kind of artificial situation. And I think he, I, I would argue that he stacked the deck from the onset in the, in the so-called experiment to really kind of get the findings that maybe he was uh, hoping to get. And I hate to say that this is commonplace in psychology or research in general, but researchers are, are well aware of how to design an experiment to ensure that the data that they're looking for will have a greater likelihood of showing up, basically. And so I think it's hard to say that this, that this study told us anything about human behavior in the way that, that Zimbardo believes it does. 
I think instead what it actually has taught us are what happens when uh, researchers who don't have the same kinds of ethical guidelines that we do today um, are sort of given control to do, you know, whatever it is that they want to study or research. And it's taught us a lot about how to ensure that we keep subjects, research subjects safe in the future. Um, and, and uh, you know, the good stuff that came out of this was stronger um, protection for research subjects in all scientific research, not just in psychology. There's lots of studies that are conducted you know, day in and day out and, and have been for decades. This one is famous because it, it piqued the public interest and it's continued to pique the public interest. And when the findings were revealed, people believed it. They accepted it. They're just like, that makes sense. Why is the public so quick to believe that these findings are true? I think people in general look for easy, simple explanations for human behavior. Um, and people want an explanation for why something is happening, whether it's good, whether it's bad. But especially when bad things happen, people want a reason and an understanding of why that bad thing has happened. Even when all of the data and all of the research that we have can't really give us that explanation. And that's really frustrating to human beings to have, uh, to have a question unanswered when it helps us make sense of a tragedy or, or if it helps us make sense of um, irrational behavior. I think this study was an attempt to make sense of irrational behavior. Um, shortly after it was uh, published, you know, there were some uh, pretty significant prison riots and people turned to this study to help uh, understand the context of those prison riots. Unfortunately, this study uh, can't really tell us anything about real life prisons or prison riots uh, because it was a completely artificial laboratory study done with 24 white uh, young college males, none of which who had any type of criminal record or any kind of criminal behavior on, on, in their past. And I'm not sure how you're, you're expected to generalize a laboratory experiment of that type to the very diverse demographics of your typical prison uh, in the 1970s or today. Well, that's the part that I want to touch on real quick. What you said was, is that the participants were young white males in college with no criminal records. And this study proved that they were bad so the public didn't just accept that bad things happen in society. They accepted that otherwise good people would be bad if you allowed them to be. I mean, isn't that really the crux of the study? It really has nothing to do with prison at all. It's basically saying that if you give people enough rope, they will become evil. Yeah, I believe the study's conclusion would be the argument that if put into a situation uh, you will start playing a role within that situation that the situation defines for you. So if you find yourself swept up in a riot in the middle of downtown, um, you know, New York city, the, uh, tomorrow, uh, according to this, uh, the findings of this experiment, you will uh, be a, a happy participant in that riot and you will start breaking windows and stealing stuff. Mob mentality, right? mob mentality. Absolutely. 
But as we've you know found out in the intervening 30, 40 years since this experiment uh, was originally conducted, um, you know, human behavior and even even social uh, group behavior is far more complex than uh, a simple um, explanation such as situational um, role playing can provide an answer to it. You know, obviously, you don't throw out your morals and you don't throw out everything that has, makes you, you know, Gabe, Gabe or Vincent, Vincent, um, just because you're in a certain situation where the roles are strongly defined. That doesn't mean that you, you, your personality just uh, completely goes away and, and doesn't have anything, anything to say about your behavior moving forward. And I think that's the important takeaway is that human behavior is complex human behavior in groups is even more complex and um, simplistic answers such as the Stanford prison experiment attempted to provide us really do a disservice to having that, you know, deeper understanding of uh, our behavior and other people's behavior. Do you think that people in the general public due to their, their belief in this experiment have concluded that, prison guards are just evil people? I think the takeaway for most people is that um, that if you were put into a role or a situation, if you were given a badge and a gun, you would be expected to act a certain way and that the, the badge and the gun would kind of take over your personality. And that um, it, that explains why prisons are so bad, that um, the guards act like guards because they're given authority over people who have no power and the prisoners act like prisoners because that's their role. They're, they're locked in a cell um, most of the day. They don't have uh, a voluntary freedom. I, I just think it's a little bit you know, more complicated than that. I don't think that um, I think a prison is a very unique kind of setting and it definitely has its own psychology and dynamics but to study a prison setting, you have to go into an actual prison. You cannot, you cannot create a fake prison in your psychology basement, building basement right. <laughs> and then expect to learn anything of value of, in that kind of experiment. Getting back to what you just said about, you know, give them a gun and a badge and, and, and power and things go awry, that's generally a very common attitude today towards police officers, law enforcement in general. Um, and, and it's kind of sad that we've dehumanized the individual officers and are looking at them as a, a large group of powerful people who just want to lord that power over everybody else. Absolutely. This is a reminder that being in a uniform, uh, whether you're a police officer or a judge or a um you know, a janitor, it doesn't, it doesn't make you that career. You're, you as a person are still there. And I know police officers and I know how traumatic it is to ever have to fire their gun ever. Even if you aren't shooting at someone, it's a big deal when a police officer fires their gun. And it's not something that most of them do without uh, a lot of forethought in terms of um, you know, deciding that they're in a dangerous situation and they feel like they need to pull the trigger. It's never so simple as saying, oh, well, they were scared and they fired their gun. Sure, that might have been a part of it, 
but that's not the whole picture. And we do a disservice to the complexity of the, the human spirit, the human mind, to suggest that uh, it's just an instinctual reaction because they're wearing a badge and they have a gun. So how does the psychology community feel about this experiment now? What is the general consensus of Dr. Zimbardo's work? So it's really hard to understand what the consensus of a, of a given profession is towards a, a specific individual. Dr. Zimbardo was uh, elected the president of the American Psychological Association. And um, so obviously, I think his fellow psychologists back at that time that he was uh, elected uh, thought very highly of him. Uh, It would be hard to say, you know, whether that's changing and whether uh, psychology professors will actually take some of this criticism to heart and use this as a teaching moment to explain, uh, not talk about the experiment so much, but talk about the methodology used for the experiment and how the results were published and disseminated because most people um, found out and and learned about the experiment, not through any kind of scientific research journal, but through um, an article that he wrote for the New York Times Magazine. So um, certainly that is an interesting, you know, footnote to this experiment. So do you think that this experiment should still be taught in schools? And if so, how? Yeah, absolutely. It should be taught, but not in, in the sense of a, a scientific study. It, it's not a scientific study. It's a, um, it, it's a very strange anecdotal um, psychodrama played out by um, that was designed by Dr. Zimbardo and the other um, people who, who worked on the experiment. And the results are not nearly as interesting as talking about um, what the researchers did, how they did it, how they set up their methodology um, to unfortunately introduce bias that they didn't seem to recognize at the time and how it led to greater protection for research subjects in the future. Really appreciate that. Dr. Grohal, it's always great to have you on here and not just because you own the place. (laughs) What parting words do you have for the audience? Because many people who listen, you know, we're we're not professionals. We're, We're trying to find information on the internet to make our lives better. And as this is illustrated, you know, it's sort of a buyer beware. How should we know what we can accept and what we can't accept? What are some maybe quick hints and tips to, you know, not be duped? So it's really challenging as a reader of the latest, you know, health study that came out and you learn about it on WebMD or some other news website that you read, because you, you can't really tell from the article about the study as to whether this study was robustly done, whether it was uh, a good scientific study, whether it was uh, generalizable because it used a very large sample size or a very diverse and demographically appropriate sample size. These are really interesting questions and often are not answered in um, consumer news articles about uh, research. And uh, I would just say, you know, keep a skeptical eye on any research that you read online. I usually read this, the news story about the study, and if I find that it's really interesting finding and something that kind of sticks with me, I'll probably file it away for future reference. And what I'm looking for in the future 
is I want to hear about the second study done that confirms the results of that first study. And that's when you start knowing that something uh, it seems to really have some legs to it in terms of research. For instance, you know, there's there's a hundred studies about things that are good for your health and bad for your health in terms of coffee or wine or this or that or the other thing. Um, but we're we're starting to have a, a consensus with some of those beverages. And for instance, it really looks like having a few cups of coffee every day. Are, is beneficial to your health. Um, having too much coffee is, is bad. So six to eight cups, probably too much. But um, two to four cups, that seems to be the sweet spot right now. And there's multiple studies that, that show health benefits for this. So if it's something else, if it's not coffee, but it just happens to be a associate healthy behavior that coffee drinkers do that non-coffee drinkers don't do, that does not seem to be a part of you know the answer to you know whether coffee is beneficial or not. So I look for multiple studies on the same topic that are sort of finding, having the same finding or a similar finding before I start taking it to heart. If there's one thing that I could just force everybody out there in internet land to get through their heads is that old expression, correlation does not imply causation. I cannot tell you how many times I have to point that out to coworkers who point to these news articles on some study or another and just point out to them, it's like, okay, so there's a connection. So the hell what? It doesn't prove that it, it caused this issue. Absolutely. And, and you've touched upon a, a topic for a whole nother um, show. Oh yeah. Which is <laughs> yeah, that, um, researchers themselves are are guilty of overstating their results and often uh, confusing the question of correlation and causation in their actual study that gets through peer review and gets published in prestigious uh, journals. So the problem starts right there and then it's amplified by press offices of universities who uh, take that, you know, minor, maybe uh, moderate statement about causation and turn it into a, a definite, you know, this definitely causes that, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Oxygen causes death. A hundred percent of people who breathe die. <laughs> yeah. This, John, thank you so much for being on the show. We always appreciate it. And of course, you are welcome back anytime. And everybody out in podcasting land, please like and share us so that we can grow and become famous. We will see everybody next week. Thank you for listening to the Psych Central Show. Please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you found this podcast. We encourage you to share our show on social media and with friends and family. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show. Psychcentral.com is the Internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website. Psychcentral is overseen by Dr. John Grohall, a mental health expert and one of the pioneering leaders in online mental health. Our host, Gabe Howard, is an award-winning writer and speaker who travels nationally. You can find more information on Gabe at GabeHoward.com. Our co-host, Vincent M. Wales, is a trained suicide prevention crisis counselor and author of several award-winning speculative fiction novels. You can learn more about Vincent at VincentMWales.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email talkback at psychcentral.com. 